0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
1: This week, we're talking about some very exciting recent arguments, some actually exciting grants, and Sixth Circuit Judge Chad Radler joins us. So the court is
0: back. Uh, hearing oral arguments after its uh, its winter break, uh,
1: and but first we're going to talk about a couple of opinions that came out the first of twenty twenty. <laughs> yes, and they're they're real winners. So the first one's a bankruptcy case, Ritten Group. Uh, Inc. versus Jackson Masonry, LLC. Um, I'll keep it very short since my eyes were rolling over as I was trying to read this. (laughs) So this is a unanimous opinion by Justice Ginsburg. And the court held that a bankruptcy court's order denying relief from an automatic stay constitutes a final immediately appealable order under 28 U.S.C. section 158A. So the short version is typically... Parties can only appeal final decisions from cases, but the bankruptcy project is really unique, and Section 158 allows parties to appeal from all final judgments, orders, and decrees in cases and proceedings. And the court has previously held that the statute allows parties to immediately appeal when the bankruptcy court has finally disposed of a discrete dispute within that larger case because that falls under the word proceedings um, and not just case. So, the court concluded in this case that an order ruling on a creditor's motion for relief from the automatic stay was properly considered a discrete dispute. Qualifying as an independent proceeding within the meaning of the statute. And Very if that, fascinating If stat.
0: that wasn't exciting enough, next up was Retirement Plans Committee of IBM versus Jander. This was a per curiam opinion, and the court vacated and remanded the case to the Second Circuit to consider the party's arguments that the lower court had not previously reviewed. The court granted cert on whether the pleading standard from Fifth Third Bank Corp versus Dudenhofer for a claim that a retirement plan breaches fiduciary duty under ERISA is satisfied by general allegations that harm of an inevitable disclosure of alleged fraud generally increases over time. However, at the Supreme Court, the petitioner and the government decided to address the other arguments. The petitioner argued that there was no fiduciary duty to act on insider information, and the government argued that an ERISA-based duty to disclose this information that is not already required by securities laws would conflict with insider trading and other federal securities laws. So, Since the Second Circuit didn't address these arguments and the court doesn't like to rule on issues that have not previously been ruled on by the lower court, the Supreme Court sent it back to the lower court to consider these arguments and whether they had already been forfeited by the party. Uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch both wrote concurrences expressing their views on the merits of these arguments, and Justice Ginsburg joined
1: the Kagan concurrence. There were about a dozen grants since our last episode, and we're not going to go through all of them, but we'll quickly run through some of the highlights. So
0: the first is Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants. This involves the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which prohibits automated calls to cell phones without the recipient's prior express consent. So the issue is whether an exception to the law that allows automated calls to collect government-backed debt uh, violates the First Amendment, and whether the proper remedy for any constitutional violation is to sever that exception from the remainder of the statute. So the respondents argue that this is a content-based restriction of speech. They want to use automated calls uh, to engage in political speech or uh, we'd better uh, call that to solicit donations. Um, There's also an exception made for emergency purposes. Uh, The government argues that the exception is focused on the economic purpose of the call rather than the content of the speech, uh, so it should not be subject to strict scrutiny review. So let's hope that if the court rules on this case by the end of June, that won't result in a flood of unwanted political
1: advocacy calls leading up to the election in November, because I really don't want any more of those. (laughs) No, I'm generally okay with no automated calls whatsoever, (laughs) though. I don't have an opinion on this case. Next up, the court granted two cases uh, dealing with the religion clauses and consolidated them. There are Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beru and St. James School versus Beal. Um, the, the question in these cases are, are whether the religion clauses prevent civil courts from adjudicating employment discrimination claims brought by an employee against her religious employer where the employee carried out important religious functions. So these are Beckett's Hosanna-Tabor follow-ons. In Hosanna-Tabor, the court, um, in a 9-0 opinion, recognized the ministerial exception, which essentially bars suits brought on behalf of ministers against their churches for alleged employment discrimination. The underlying principle there being that a church has the right to decide who its ministers are. But the Ninth Circuit has twice held that under Hosanna Tabor, a person must always have a religious title or religious training to qualify for the ministerial exception and that serving an important religious function alone can never suffice. Um, So this splits with the Seventh Circuit and I believe seven state Supreme Courts. So we'll be watching that closely because that's a really interesting issue. Mm -hmm. Next up is Torres versus Janice. The question presented Is an unsuccessful attempt to detain a suspect by use of physical force a seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment or must physical force be successful in detaining a suspect to constitute a seizure? So really crazy facts here. There's a woman in New Mexico who's allegedly involved in organized crime and some other pretty bad stuff. The police go to arrest her at her apartment complex Uh, She somehow gets in her car and starts driving, and the police think that she's going to hit them, and they shoot her twice. So she drives 75 miles away to a hospital, and after she was treated there, she was arrested. And after that, she brought an excessive force suit, and the district court granted summary judgment for the officers, holding that there was no seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Um, The Tenth Circuit affirmed. Reasoning that an officer's application of physical force is not a seizure if the person is able to evade apprehension, and she drove seventy-five miles after being shot. Yes, wow. Yes, so <laughs> that is crazy. Kind of, yeah. Weird facts. I don't know exactly what I think about this. Yeah, actually, but it's it's a <laughs> unique kind of case. And then next is McGirt versus Oklahoma. The question is whether the prosecution of an enrolled member of the Creek Tribe. For crimes committed within the historical Creek boundaries is subject to exclusive federal jurisdiction. So, this case is similar to a case from last year that went unresolved, which I hadn't realized before this. That case was Sharp versus Murphy. Um, in that case, the court had asked for additional briefing in a case where a capital defendant argued that basically half of Oklahoma is actually Indian country. And ultimately, the court ordered it to be reargued, which I'm a little confused about because it doesn't look like it's actually scheduled for a reargument. But I yeah. looked at the docket, and it says it's to be scheduled for redocument or reargument, but that the court also sent the record back to the Tenth Circuit. So
0: yeah, so it was argued in December of 2018, and mm-hmm. then they asked for more briefing after the argument. Both sides filed more briefing, and then end of the term comes no opinion in this case and then it says oh it's it's being restored to the argument calendar for the 2019 term and you know that we're halfway through the term yeah. and it hadn't been scheduled for argument so uh, people were wondering what is going on with this case and then we see this other similar case has been has been granted so i'm wondering if so gorsuch was recused
1: yeah, because I think he in participated the in the, case, on the panel in the Tenth Circuit, or maybe on Bonk. He was at least on, he was at
0: least on the Tenth Circuit, so maybe maybe he voted on Um But I I haven't checked, but I'm guessing this one. Maybe it was after he was appointed, he moved to the Supreme Court, so maybe he won't be recused in this one, and then they're just holding the other one. Yeah, we'll
1: see what what happens. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'm like scouring the docket and the calendars. I'm like, where's this case? Um, it's a p- pretty obscure case, but also important because it deals with other um, certain serious crimes can be prosecuted by the federal government in this territory.
0: And so then the the final set of cases that are consolidated. Just a disclaimer: Tiffany's firm represents the president in two of these three cases. Uh, so these are the uh, Trump versus Vance. Uh, Trump versus Mazars and Trump versus Deutsche Bank. And uh, these are the cases involving efforts to subpoena President Trump's tax returns. Uh, So Vance stems from a grand jury investigation in New York State Court uh, in which 10 years of Trump's financial records are being sought. Mazars and uh, Deutsche Bank involve the House Committee on Oversight and Reform's attempt to subpoena. Uh, The same financial records, the cases are going to be argued in March of this year. Uh, In the congressional cases, the president argues that the committee doesn't have a legitimate um, legislative purpose for seeking his financial records. So the House can't subpoena the documents to serve a law enforcement purpose uh, because that's beyond Uh, Congress's authority. And then in the New York case, the president has invoked a claim of absolute immunity from state criminal process while he is in office. So the president argues that allowing a state or local prosecution to go forward would interfere with his ability to perform his duties under Article 2 of the Constitution. And it would also circumvent the only constitutionally authorized method of removing a president from office, which is, of course, impeachment. So moving on, uh, those are all cases that I expect all of the dozen new grants will likely be heard in March of April, uh, which may fill out the calendar for, for this term. So moving on to recent arguments, the court is hearing heard arguments this week, and it'll hear a couple next week for its January sitting, and then it'll have a few weeks off. Chief Justice Roberts won't have anything else going on in the interim, <laughs> <Yeah>. right?
1: <laughs> no, nothing at all.
0: So the, uh, the most – I think the most interesting argument from this week is Kelly versus United States. This is the infamous Bridgegate case. So if you think back to 2013 uh, when Chris Christie was governor of New Jersey, there was this scandal that caught national attention when a couple of the lanes on George Washington Bridge that were typically allocated to Fort Lee, New Jersey – during morning rush hour, were reduced down to just one lane. Now, the lanes weren't closed. They were open to other traffic. But Fort Lee had this decades-long agreement with the governor's office that they would have these three special access lanes. So this was the first week back in school in September of 2013. And they only had one lane. And it just resulted in crippling gridlock for the city of Fort Lee for several days. And the mayor's calls to the Port Authority went unanswered. And then it was later discovered that this was all part of a scheme to get back at the mayor because he, a Democrat, had refused to endorse Chris Christie for his reelection campaign. Uh, so a couple of Christie's aides came up with this plan. And it, there's an email that says it's time for some traffic in Fort Lee. So they you know, they came up with this plan to to punish the mayor and his and his city, so these aides were both fired. Uh, but then, on top of that, they ended up being convicted of several federal crimes, and so that is what's at the Supreme Court. So, particularly, they were they were convicted of property fraud. And this was the Supreme Court debut of a Jones Day attorney who who clerked for Justice Scalia. He represented Bridget Ann Kelly, who's the lead plaintiff in the case. His name's Yakov uh, Roth. So he argued that the property fraud statute criminalizes schemes to obtain property. And there wasn't an attempt to try to obtain property here. A better example of a property fraud um, action would be if there's a government employee who uses a snowplow... That's the government's to plow his street, not reallocating traffic lanes. Uh, they they weren't obtaining any property, so both sides got a lot of a lot of hard questions. I thought. You know, Justice Alito said, "Well, you know, there was money spent on this scheme, so overtime payments for toll collectors and for the engineers, and money is property." And Mr. Roth said, "You know, those are incidental costs and not the object of the scheme." Uh, the the Attorney General, um, I'm sorry, the attorney from the SG's office argued on behalf of the federal government that these actions amounted to commandeering fraud. Uh, he said that Kelly and and the other uh, and the other person involved in the scheme had commandeered the property being the, the employee's time to, you know, redirect traffic and all of that. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts responded to that. He, he pointed out that the lanes were still being used for a public purpose. Uh, people were still driving on the bridge during those four days of gridlock. Justice Kagan also chimed in and she said, you know, she didn't see this as commandeering because the object of the scheme was to create gridlock and not the object wasn't to commandeer the employee's time. Uh, Justice Alito wanted to know whether, you know, why the intent of Kelly and and the other uh, person, Baroni, why their intent mattered, because this was a legitimate action that they took. Um, You know, they said it was a traffic study. They had the authority to conduct a traffic study, and so their alleged subjective intent to punish the mayor of Fort Lee, why is that relevant? And Alito said, you know, he came up with an example and said, this is like if you're an employer and and you decide to hire a relative who happens to be the best qualified candidate for the job, uh, but the real reason you're hiring this relative is because your wife told you to do it, um, <laughs> you still have the authority to hire that person. So it it seemed like based on the argument, it, this is kind of in in – The general trend of the justices being um, pretty skeptical of overzealous prosecution. Um, So we'll see what happens. But Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas uh, did not ask any questions. And I think Kavanaugh maybe asked one or two, uh, but was mostly silent throughout the argument. So we'll see what happens there. There was another argument. I don't want to get into how the oral argument went. I just want to note one thing. So this was Babb versus Wilkie. And the case involves whether in a federal employee's age discrimination suit age must be the but-for cause of the alleged uh, – of the challenged personnel action. So Chief Justice Roberts asked at one point if a hiring man- manager said something about OK Boomer, if that's enough to show uh, discrimination. So does that mean the phrase is officially over the hill now that Supreme Court justices <laughs> are using it?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I guess, well, what generation is the chief from? I think he – I is, don't think he's a boomer. No, he must be after the boomers, but not yeah. – probably not too far. Fu- far after. <laughs> Maybe his children have said this to him or something like that. <laughs> a lot of novel stuff for the chief. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a, big a wild time for him. It's a big week. And I just wanted to highlight one case that's coming up next week. We'll talk about it more in depth once it happens. Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. The question here is whether it violates the religion clauses or the Equal Protection Clause to invalidate a generally applicable and religiously neutral student aid program, simply because the program affords students the choice of attending religious schools. So Montana created a state scholarship program to help needy children attend um, private schools that their family could choose. And the Montana Department of Revenue then promulgated an administrative rule that prohibited scholarship recipients from using those funds at religious schools. three low-income mothers who want to send their children to a non-denominational Christian school sued. Um, The Montana Supreme Court uh, eventually invalidated the entire scholarship program, holding that because families could choose to use the scholarships at religious schools, the program thereby aided religious institutions and was in violation of the Montana Constitution, um, particularly its uh, Blaine Amendment, though I don't know that they call those— that anymore. So the Blaine Amendment, a lot of states have these. It's provision in state constitutions barring the use of state funds at so-called sectarian schools. And a lot of these were born um, out of anti-Catholic animus when they were passed. Um, though interesting enough, I'm not sure. I don't. I think the Montana Amendment wasn't passed until the 70s. So I'm not sure it's the same particular kind of Discrimination, but it, you know, it could still um, have a history of animus, you know, generally against religion or something like that. I haven't looked into this closely, but a few terms ago, the court decided a somewhat similar case, Trinity Lutheran, dealing with playground equipment. So it's it'll be interesting to see where the court goes here, whether it'll address the Blaine Amendment directly, because mm-hmm. uh, because it didn't in Trinity Lutheran, whether it will have the same sort of reasoning in this case.
0: Yeah, and I, I believe the solicitor general filed uh, an amicus brief on the side of the parents in the case, saying, "Like, let's throw out these Blaine amendments." Uh, so we'll see how the how the argument goes next week. Could be could make for some fireworks. But moving on, I recently spoke with Judge Radler. Chad Radler is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS One Hundred and One, Judge Radler.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So, I understand you're a pretty big Michigan fan, but you've lived in the heart of Buckeye Territory for some years now. How have you survived?
2: It's a good question. Uh, I suppose now with life tenure and Marshall's protection, it's a bunch easier. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's a great football rivalry, and um, being Columbus actually makes it better in some ways because people love to talk college football. Uh, I'm certain that Michigan is probably the second most popular team in town, uh, but there's a (laughs) wide gap between the number one and number two teams. Um, Point is, it's a great conversation starter, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a lot of mutual respect that goes back and forth, I think, between the two teams. Uh, My team's been on the short end of the stick many times uh, recently, so that's made it tougher, but um, it's a great rivalry, I think one of the best in sports.
0: (laughs) All right, let's dig into your career. Uh, So just starting out, you, you clerked for Judge Alan Norris of the Sixth Circuit. So tell me about your time in his chambers and some of the things that you learned from him.
2: Yeah. So it turns out that actually my seat on the court was Judge Norris's seat. Um, There was an intervening judge, uh, Judge Debbie Cook, who's a wonderful judge as well. And so you sort of never think when you're clerking that you're ever going to be a member of that court, let alone, you know, in in some ways replace the judge who you clerked for. And it's such a privilege. Um, Judge Norris was a wonderful boss, a terrific judge, uh, but also a great mentor and Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the things I really appreciated about him were the way he treated uh, his colleagues, his clerks, advocates before him. There were so many times after I clerked for him where I'd meet lawyers who would figure out that I had worked for Judge Norris and would say, you know, I argued this case in front of him, and he was just so gracious and so great to appear in front of. And so in many ways, I hope to sort of idolize um, Judge Norris in the sense he's just very fair, um, treats the parties well, and sort of win or lose, I think everyone felt like. They had a good experience with him, mm-hmm. and that also translated to his colleagues. I felt like he was, you know, quite popular and still is a member of the court. Um, whether he, you agreed with his outcome or disagreed, he really got along well with people, and I think that's important in a multi-member court.
0: Definitely. So, tell me about some of your your other mentors that you've had.
2: Well, another mentor who's currently on the court, who was a colleague of mine very early in my career, is Judge Jeffrey Sutton, uh, a wonderful, wonderful judge. But I knew. Judge Sutton, when I was a very new lawyer, I had just finished clerking for Judge Norris. I went to work at Jones Day Columbus, mm-hmm. a really terrific office of a great law firm. And Judge Sutton had just finished being the state solicitor of Ohio, a job that he really transformed and made into sort of that incredible job all around the country that it is today. Uh, and so I sort of knew who he was and walked into his office one day and asked if I could work with him on something because I knew about his you know, incredible background and great legal skills. And the first case I got to work on with him was actually a matter in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it's a pretty incredible way to sort of start your legal career. Um, <laughs> I was doing, you know, pretty menial tasks on the first couple of briefs that I worked on, but it was just a real privilege to do it. And I worked with Judge Sutton for about five years before he went on the Sixth Circuit. And so, to learn um, law, especially appellate advocacy, from really one of the best lawyers that I've ever seen, maybe the best, so early in my career, just I think transformed my career in so many ways. Um, and it's really now a privilege to be his colleague. Um, I joke with him that I will still dissent from one of his opinions if it's appropriate, um, <laughs> but uh, he's a wonderful judge and was, was, was really impactful in my career early on. Um, beyond that, I just worked with so many great lawyers at Jones Day and then at the Justice Department that uh, there are just so many people who impact your life along the way, and sort of one of the fun things about careers is you don't necessarily know who will be mm-hmm. a mentor or who you'll run into or who might impact your career, and I feel like I've been really fortunate in that way.
0: Now, you mentioned working on uh, Supreme Court cases, and you had the opportunity to argue one case at the Supreme Court. So tell me about that experience.
2: Uh, sure. So it was a lot of fun, and I just wish I would have been able to do a second one, because once you go through the process of preparing once and being nervous and then standing <laughs> up and doing it and realize you can survive, it would have been great to have done another one. Yeah. Um, but I was really honored to do one. Uh, it was a pro bono case, actually. And I um, I did a lot of pro bono work when I was in private practice. My law firm was very supportive of that. This was a a case about um, habeas and and, uh, the federal EDPA statute. Um, The question in the case was whether uh, someone who can put forward a credible claim of actual innocence um, can survive the um, traditional one-year bar on bringing habeas claims. So you have Mm -hmm. a year to do that after your conviction is final. Um, But the issue in our case is for for an inmate who could— Incredibly, show that they're actually innocent. Is that one-year bar still going to apply to them? And the court, five to four, agreed with our position. Um, so one and zero, and that's probably my career record now at this point. So I'm, I'm happy to be uh, sort of undefeated in, in that sense. Um, but it was just the preparation for it was really great training, and then I think great training to maybe later on go on to the Justice Department and handle some pretty high-profile cases. Because you know, for most lawyers, on most cases you're working on, especially in private practice. The only people who are paying attention to them, by and large, are the lawyers and the clients, and most cases don't get a lot of their outside attention. As soon as you have a case in front of the Supreme Court, it doesn't really matter (laughs) what kind of case it is. Yeah, You know, everyone kind of knows that you're doing it. Um, There are probably national groups. In my case, it was a lot of criminal defense lawyers who really cared about the case Mm because this was going to be an important rule, and prosecutors too, but this was going to be an important rule for them in terms of future habeas litigation. Uh, So you feel an extra burden in the sense that people really want you to do well. You do a lot of moot courts, um, but there's some, you know, extra sense of duty and obligation to do do a good job because a lot of this decision will impact a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, across the country and across the legal profession. And um, I think I probably slept an hour the night before (laughs) um, to be matched probably by the one hour I slept the night before my confirmation hearing. Oh, I'm sure. Um, But happily, those two experiences are in the past.
0: (laughs) So uh, before your Confirmation. Uh, You served as the acting head of the civil division in the Justice Department. And I've heard your first day on the job was an eventful one. You care to share that story?
2: Yeah. So there were many eventful days, you might imagine, um, at the Justice Department. Uh, I was the acting head of the civil division, which is made up of a thousand just wonderful career lawyers. Uh, The high profile cases we had were primarily challenges to different policy decisions made by the administration, executive orders, um, agency action. And so we had just many, many high-profile cases, and probably my first day on the job sort of exemplified what it was like <laughs> because there was both professional and physical pain uh, involved in that first day. Uh, so to take a step back, uh, transitions are quite interesting, right? You have a new president elected in November, and you have an administration that has to be up and running on January 20th. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot of time in between, and so people who go into the administration, especially if you're not the very highest level... Um, You don't have a lot of sort of advanced notice. You might say you're interested in doing something, interview with some people. But for me, it was was, probably a week into January of 2017 before I knew I had a position, Mm -hmm. and they wanted me to start January 20th. Um, I had a commitment to actually argue an 11th Circuit case for a client on January 26th, which was a Thursday. So I said I would start the following Monday, which was January 30th. Um, I was living in Columbus, Ohio. I'd been a lawyer at Jones Day for 20 years, so this was... Quite a big change to come out to D.C. and work for a <laughs> DOJ. Uh, so on this Thursday, I argue this case in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, in the Eleventh Circuit. I fly back to Columbus uh, Friday morning. I say goodbye to my colleagues who I've worked with for a couple of decades now. I wasn't until Saturday they actually packed up my office because I didn't have time to do that on Friday. <laughs> yeah. On Sunday, I coach my daughter's um, middle school basketball game and then pack up a rental car with clothes to last me a couple of weeks to drive off to D.C. to stay in a place that I found on Craigslist. Oh, boy. Uh, so not a particularly romantic you know, description of um, <laughs> Mr. Radler goes to Washington, but I was really excited about it. Um, I'm driving on the Sunday evening to D.C. to get ready to start the next day at DOJ, and I was having some mouth pain, and I really attribute this to nerves. You know, this was a big big change for me in terms of yeah. my career and my, my profile. Um, so I wake up on Monday morning in D.C. in just terrible, terrible pain, maybe the worst pain I've ever experienced. Um, I end up getting a root canal my first morning in Washington. Um, oh, gosh. My, my tooth had been infect- infected. I make it to DOJ. I sort of find someone there to tell them, I am going to come work here. I'm going to show up, <laughs> but I've got to go to the dentist. Um, if anyone needs a recommendation, there's a dentist about two blocks from DOJ that um, beautifully took care of me that morning. But I, uh, after, the, after the surgery, I went back to DOJ about 1 o'clock. I meet my staff. um, Very exciting. Go back to my office for maybe no more than thirty minutes, and my new colleague runs down and says, "There's an emergency meeting with the Attorney General, um, who who was who was General Yates at that time, because she was sort of carrying over and General Sessions had not been confirmed." So we go upstairs for a fairly long meeting to discuss an executive order, kind of that's been come to know as the travel ban. Um, I was probably the only person in America who missed the fact that it had come out on Friday uh, before <laughs> I started on Monday because I just had so many personal changes in my life that I wasn't yeah. focused on the news of the day. So we had this, you know, for me, it was very informative um, conversation. Um, a couple hours after that meeting, the attorney general announces she won't be um, defending the law, which is quite unusual. And a couple hours after that, she's fired by the president, which is also unusual. And this all happened on my first day in D.C. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a pretty fair introduction, I think, to working at DOJ and some of the challenges that we had. Um, but overall, the experience was was just amazing, and uh, I just really credit all the great lawyers who who worked there.
0: Sounds like a baptism by fire, sort of. <laughs> so now you're a judge. Uh, how has the transition been, going from private practice for a number of years and then a couple of years in the Trump administration to what I understand is a somewhat monastic lifestyle as an appellate judge?
2: Yeah. Well, no root canals, so that's that's an upgrade. <laughs> Uh, so I've loved all of my jobs, and this one is quite different. I would say than the prior two. Um, there's always a lot of excitement uh, at you know in a sort of law firm or at the government. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of day-to-day action, lots of emergencies, and uh, we have no emergencies. Um, the day-to-day action is, is pretty well planned and thought out in advance. And the nice part about that, of course, is you have time to really think about kind of what you're doing. Not that you don't in a law firm, but there's always pressure to do something else or or to take up whatever the newest emergency is. At the court, um, it's a really great privilege because you have time with your law clerks and with other judges to think about pretty hard issues and to try to get them right uh, and to write an opinion that will resolve the issue in a sensible way and be fairly applied going forward. I'd say the biggest difference, and other than the sort of day-to-day level of activity, um, is the fact that as a, as a, as a lawyer in practice, uh, either government or, but especially in private practice, you know, you're really your main job is to win the case that day, is to be able to go to court and come back and tell your client we won. And oftentimes you honestly really don't care how you won, what the legal <laughs> analysis was, was it a good opinion, is it was it a terrible opinion. Uh, as long as you won, that was really the goal. And so your one job was to advocate for your position and convince the judge or judges that day. Um, it's quite different on the court in the sense that, I guess, I'm guessing most judges would say that on... Virtually all of their cases, they really don't care in a sense who wins or loses. Um, that's, not, that's not the main consideration. The main consideration is writing an opinion that will stand up not that, just that day, but all future days. Um, like every other appellate court, I think, if we write an opinion, a three-judge panel, that binds the entire circuit, all 16 active and 12 seniors, so all 28 judges, plus all the district courts. That can only be overruled by an en banc decision, mm-hmm. and our court does not meet all that frequently en banc. Or by the Supreme Court, and of course they don't take that many cases. So, you know, the rule you're writing in that in that one case um, has, has a quite quite an impact, and you just want to make sure that you get it right, and you think about as much as you can all the future consequences that that rule um, will have uh, to make sure that the next case gets resolved correctly following that rule as well. And and so I think that's been the big challenge is try to trying to sort of think forward and and um, you know how resolving our cases will set a precedent that has to be followed for many years to come.
0: So shifting gears a bit, I've heard about the traditions and outings a lot of other judges have with their law clerks. Uh, Judge the Parr told me about uh, taking his clerks shooting and then drinking bourbon. He's on brand being from Kentucky. Um, you know, I've heard about running marathons with Judge Hardiman. Uh, is there anything in particular you like to do with your clerks?
2: Yeah, that's great. Well, I don't really shoot guns and I've only <laughs> done half marathons. So, uh, well, I think there will be some traditions that come out of the Radler Chambers, but sometimes the best traditions are ones that aren't planned, that mm-hmm. just sort of happen organically. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there may have been something in the first eight months that's happened that will replicate itself from year to year. But I'd recognize two other traditions on our circuit that uh, I might try to emulate and I will maybe try to join in on while they're still going, ongoing. Um, Judge Norris, who I clerked for for probably the last six years, uh, annually has taken a group to Gettysburg. Um, he's a real enthusiast for the Civil War and especially Gettysburg. Uh, and I was really honored to go on his first trip where he takes judges, their clerks, and then some of his former clerks out to Gettysburg. Uh, and I've now done that trip one other time, and I, I think um, Judge Norris will do it again this spring, and I'm hoping to take my clerks. So it's not a tradition I started, but it's a tradition I would happily join in on while it's yeah, while still wonderful. ongoing. Uh, Judge Sutton, who I mentioned earlier, um, has had a tradition of biking down to sittings. Uh, we both, we <laughs> both have our chambers in Columbus and the court meets in Cincinnati. That is a 100 plus mile uh, difference. And Judge Sutton, I think on at least a dozen occasions, has biked along with um, uh, probably one or uh, one or two clerks. Uh, I think they volunteer for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I could probably do that maybe once a year. And um, the next time Judge Sutton does it, if any of my clerks want to go, maybe we'll try to try to join him in, in the in the ride down.
0: Wow, that. That's a long trip. <laughs>
2: it is. It is a long trip. Uh, he's he's got I know quite well mapped out in terms of the route to take and yeah. his judicial assistant knows where to pick him up. Um, so, <laughs> but I hopefully great. we'll have some of our own in chambers um, after a couple of years.
0: Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, I understand that you like to travel. Yes. So tell me about some of your favorite destinations.
2: Well, I, my, I have a daughter who's now a freshman in high school, and probably five or six years now, I've been taking her to Europe once a summer, mm-hmm. uh, just so she could see other parts of the world. And I tried to make those fun trips so they weren't obviously educational. Uh, <laughs> sometimes we would do cruises, which are inherently usually pretty fun. But uh, it was also a chance for her to sort of experience different cultures, and different communities, different um, times in history. And so I think that's been great for her. Now in school, when she studies different time periods, she'll know what it's like to be in Rome or... Mm -hmm. or to be in Greece, or um, a different part of Europe. Uh, But personally, probably the two most rewarding trips um, I've been on, one was a a hike in Peru um, to Machu Picchu. So I did a four-day, three-night hike. And a lot of people have done that. It's a really um, incredible experience. For me, I went alone and joined up with a group of probably 15 people. I think I was the only American and probably the oldest person in the group. So being out in the Mountains, um, you know, ten, twelve thousand 12,000 feet above sea level with strangers and a few (laughs) uh, Peruvian guides was just really quite a life experience and a way to kind of clear your head head and and think about a lot of things. And then um, when I was at Jones Day, I traveled to Kenya, to Nairobi, to participate in a Lawyers Without Borders program. Um, which was really rewarding. Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone knows Doctors Without Borders, and I feel a little bad for lawyers because people don't quite know Lawyers Without Borders as well. Uh, And, you know, in Doctors' Defense, they're rushing and saving lives. That's not what lawyers do. But this is a really meaningful program. Um, My program was to go to Kenya and work with lawyers there and help train them on trial practice. And uh, the Kenyan legal system is very much like the American system, because they both emanated from the British system. Mm-hmm. So if you go to court there, uh, it's it's done in English, and the proceeding is very much like our legal system. But in many ways, not as sophisticated. They've had some issues with corruption and other things. And so um, a group of lawyers and judges go over, go over every year to help train their lawyers. And the year I went, we did a mock trial where the uh, trial was um, – The enforcement of some new domestic violence laws that the country just passed, which is a big societal problem. And so Mm -hmm. we helped train their lawyers how to prosecute those cases, which would hopefully have the double effect of improving their legal system and maybe helping them address a, unfortunately, sort of widespread societal problem in their country. So I was able to spend time with 50 Kenyan lawyers and get to know them and appreciate their culture and their legal system. And at the end, I did a short safari, which is you Know a lot of people have done those, but if you haven't, they're kind of hard to describe how incredible it is to be out in the world with animals kind of walking around your vehicle, big and small. Yeah. Um, it's a great trip,
0: that's incredible. How did you learn about Lawyers Without Borders? I've actually never heard of it before. Yeah,
2: so it proves my point about I mean, everyone knows Doctors Without Borders, yeah. um, and kudos to them. Uh, so Jones Day was, just a, was a big supporter of the program, uh, Jones Day is very committed to pro bono efforts, and one of their areas of emphasis was the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And so they've tried to find different rule of law projects where they could enhance democracy and emerging legal systems throughout the world. Uh, And this Lawyers Without Borders program was was really a perfect match. Um, So uh, then Seventh Circuit Judge Ann Williams led the the program, and she's done that for many years, Mm -hmm. but she has now actually left the bench and joined joined the law firm. And I think they're still pretty active in, in this program and others.
0: So, if you hadn't become a lawyer, what do you think you'd be doing today? Travel guide?
2: Uh, that's a great question. If I could, if I could hit a curveball, probably play baseball in the major <laughs> leagues. But um, that dream sort of faded in eighth grade. I think. Both of my parents were public servants, and so I think I would be doing something in public service. My mother was a, an elementary school teacher and then a principal. My father worked for the general accounting office. I think it's now called the Government Accountability Office for many years in Detroit. So I, I I appreciated their public service and how that they were able to get involved with interesting things and help people. Um, so probably maybe something in government that was sort of public service or service oriented, maybe teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, not sure, but I'm probably wouldn't be baseball actually. And in the, in the end, just due to talent <laughs> talent limitations.
0: So a lot of our listeners are young lawyers. Uh, so what advice do you wish someone had shared with you when you were just starting out?
2: Yeah, I think it's to um, just try things out and to be open to new experiences and meeting new people and doing new things um, I sort of said earlier you don't necessarily know who your mentors are going to be if you clerk for a judge for a year that's probably pretty good person that pretty likely pretty high likelihood that person will be a mentor mm-hmm. for that year and hopefully beyond but You know, for example, in a law firm or a big government agency, you don't necessarily know who the people are. They're going to give you that great opportunity to do something in court or to pull you aside and just give you some great life advice or become a personal friend. So I think sort of trying things and being involved in things, um, if there are organizations that are of interest to you or uh, teaching or volunteer work, uh, just because, you know, one, again, you don't know who you're going to meet and how that might influence uh, your life, and you don't know what you know, you might be interested in that you didn't think you'd be interested in. Um, One of the great things about being a lawyer is there's so much flexibility in the job. Mm -hmm. I mean, ironically, now I have zero flexibility, essentially. (laughs) Um, You know, for good or bad, this is a lifetime position. But lawyers can be at private practice, be in the government. They can teach. They can go in-house. They can go into business and even the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Lawyers start nonprofits and just use those legal skills in different ways. And so I think you never know with a law degree kind of where it's going to take you. And I would probably do things that— don't limit your career, but give the chance to expand it and just kind of see where, where it goes. I really never would have dreamed that I was going to work at the Department of Justice or become a judge, and those were things that happened, I think, because I had been involved with certain things and expressed mm-hmm. interest and tried to get to know some people, um, and I'm just incredibly appreciative that those opportunities came about, and so I hope other people will do the same.
0: So one final question that I ask all guests of SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice... Living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to be a bit of a homer here and say William Howard Taft uh, for the maybe not obvious reason that he was a member of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals <laughs> at one point in his career. My understanding is he went on to some other government service a uh, things, after yeah. that. But uh, he's from Cincinnati and in some of the writings about him, he it is said that he enjoyed his job on the Sixth Circuit as much as any others and that included being Solicitor General, being... Uh, I think he was governor of the Philippines, and then, of course, president and chief justice. So, mm-hmm. if you're interested in public service, um, you know, President or Chief Justice Taft pretty much hit every level that you can imagine. And I would love <laughs> to talk to him about that and contrast that with his experience on the Sixth Circuit. He was actually one of the very early um, judges on the Sixth Circuit. Mm-hmm. If I had a runner up answer, it'd be a little bit in the same vein, and that would be Potter Stewart. Okay. Potter Stewart is also an Ohioan uh, from Cincinnati and uh, went on to be on the Supreme Court. Our courthouse in Cincinnati is named after Potter Stewart. It's the Potter Stewart Courthouse. And my seat on the court actually traces back through Potter Stewart. So I'm not putting myself in the same class of judge, (laughs) but we do share the same seat. And so it'd be wonderful to talk to him about his experiences between being on our court and then being at the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, Uh, both wonderful, wonderful answers. Well, Judge Radler, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. Sports theme. Okay. I'm going to try to stump (laughs) Tiffany. And let me just preface this by saying uh, a big thanks to uh, my new intern, Nyla Meese, who provided the questions. And she came up with the theme. So I'm not sure uh, why she wanted to do sports, but I think they're pretty good. Okay. Are are you ready? Yeah. Let's do it. First question. When did Byron Whizzer-White play in the NFL?
1: If you can give me a decade, that's good enough. Just a decade. I'm so bad with dates. The 60s? I don't know. No. It was the 1930s
0: <laughs> Okay. prior to serving in World War II, which he met JFK in World War II, and he you know, would go on to be the president who would appoint him to the Supreme Court. So he played for the Detroit Lions and the Pittsburgh Pirates and studied for his law degree during the offseason. Okay. I told you I'm bad with dates and sports. <laughs> Second question. Which justice had a scorecard from the game – where Babe Ruth hit his famous called shot uh, hanging on the wall of his chambers. and he, um, He's
1: deceased. Uh, baseball. Big, big baseball fan. Okay. Well, I know Justice Alito loves baseball, but you said this Justice is deceased. I don't know. They probably all like baseball. That's true. Um, I don't know. It was John Paul Stevens. Oh. Yeah. Duh. He also really loved baseball. In, First pitch. Um, I
0: should have guessed that. So in 1932... He was at the game when this called shot home run occurred. Uh, And a lifelong Cubs fan, Justice Stevens, got to throw out the first pitch at a Cubs game at Wrigley Field in 2005. That was the softball. I'm sorry. I didn't get it. (laughs) Okay. Third question. And it's another baseball one. Which two justices often attended Washington Senators' games together? Now, to give you a hint, that team left D.C. in 1960 And both of these justices were appointed by Eisenhower. Oh, jeez. Eisenhower. And they were buddies, often in opinions and in life.
1: I don't even know who Eisenhower appointed. (laughs) Just. No, because if I guess, I'm going to guess like something (laughs) way off again. All right. Well, I'll just tell you. Okay. It was Brennan and Warren. See, I didn't even
0: know they were friends. They shared a love of baseball and developed a fond friendship. So Justice Brennan apparently spent his first official day on the court watching the 1956 World Series in a third floor conference room uh, with several of the justices. Interesting. It's a good start to your uh, new job. (laughs) Okay, fourth question. Which, and this is a current justice, which justice is left-handed but learned to play golf with right-handed clubs? (laughs) It's really (laughs) random. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Love to see where these hmm. questions came from. I'm
1: going to say it's Alito or Gorsuch.
0: No, it's actually Ginsburg. Oh. Yeah. She golfs? She golfs. Did not know that. Uh, According to, I found this, a 2015 interview with Golf Magazine, golf contributed to her decision to go to law school. So (laughs) she and her future husband, Marty, when they were at Cornell, they wanted to pursue careers in the same field. So they considered medicine, but Marty was on the golf team, and their practices were in the afternoon, and there were a lot of important pre-med uh, chemistry labs that were also in the afternoon. <laughs> so they decided to, uh, to, to go with, uh, with something else, and she got a degree in government, and then they went on to law school oh, together. Yeah. Just happened. Yeah, just happened. <laughs> That's uh, funny. Yeah. Can you imagine if there had been a, a Dr. RBG instead of a Justice RBG? <laughs> okay, fifth and final question. Okay. Which justice arranged for the acquisition of a ping pong table for the high court? It was a chief justice. I'll give you that. Oh, it was a chief? Um, I'm going to go with Rehnquist. That is correct. Yes, and apparently one. he and the other justices would make bets on games between their clerks,
1: <laughs> which I think is pretty great. That is pretty great.
0: I like it. It sounds really on theme for, Ping pong and for basketball. Ping pong and basketball.
1: All right. Well, I think you did – you know, pretty – you did decent. Uh, those, were, those were tough questions. My office would be ashamed.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes,
1: or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound design by Lauren Evans, Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.